This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 328, November 12, 1994. In this session, John Upton, Mark Rushdoony, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, and I will be discussing a subject which Douglas Murray is aptly titled Intellectual Barbarians. More than once in history, barbarians have erupted from beyond the borders to invade and destroy uh, an empire or a civilization, as in the case of the Romans. But today the barbarians are from within, and they are intellectual barbarians. One man who has written very ably on this is John Kerry, The Intellectuals and the Masses, a book published, oh, this year, in which I and Douglas and uh, Mark discussed about two months ago. John, would you like to comment generally on intellectual barbarians. Well, one of the first things I ever heard you say, Rush, was you, you quoted um, the scripture, all those who hate me love death. And what we find among the intellectuals is that, is that they're really dead. But in their death throes, they have been able to influence a generation, certainly my generation. And Orwell wrote it best about himself and other intellectuals of his period when he says my poems are dead because I'm dead you're dead we're all dead dead people in a dead world life under a decaying capitalism is, is deathly and meaningless look at all those bloody houses and the meaningless people inside them sometimes I think they're all corpses just rotting upright that is their starting point because they're in rebellion against the living God because they find no meaning, because their their sin has totally precluded any meaning in their life, they're out to convince the world and anybody within shouting distance that everything is dead and meaningless. And uh, later on, we can get into it, that the implications of that in modern culture, in art, in the theater, and in, in films. One of the things about this. Uh barbarism I think was well pinpointed oh more than 60 years ago by Ortega y Gasset Jose Ortega y Gasset in his book The Revolt of the Masses in which he said the mark of the barbarians and he was talking then about the scientists and the intellectuals was that they took granted things that were a product of a religious culture. And he said they assumed that the culture around us and its moral standards are there just like the air and the water are there as a part of nature. And he said that's the mark of the barbarian. He doesn't see what is a human product a product of a religion, a faith. I think the experience you had yesterday morning while you were waiting for us for breakfast at the restaurant 
was devastatingly clear how this barbarism has seeped down to the ordinary person. Well, the uh, at the restaurant while we were waiting to have our meeting, um, four people walked in the room. Two of them were young people, I'd say in their 20s, and then the uh, uh, two parents. The parents were of the young man, and it was the young man's wedding day. And he was a working man, you could tell. He had um, uh, could have been a mechanic. His, he had grease under his fingernails, and he had a, a rather a plain... Um, inexpensive suit on and the thing that that uh, revolted me was that in the period of 45 minutes the young man managed to tell his future wife actually in a few hours that she was fat that she couldn't drive that she wasn't very smart that she couldn't cook that she spent too much money and he uh, couldn't even look at her, basically. Now, a lot of it I, I, I wrote off um, for, for maybe pregame jitters, but it was, it, it was interesting. <laughs> and one of the, the funniest things was is that um, the, 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 the wife, who was very uh, plain-looking and, and didn't say much, uh, was nervous because she was afraid that this young man was going to go off uh, with the best man and get drunk before the, the wedding ceremony. And and in that, we, we kind of see this, um, this the, the, uh, a hopelessness. Um, these people, this is supposed to be the happiest day of their life. This is the day that they're going to be joined uh, by God for service. And here they are um, uh, grading on each other. But but what happened was, is that after these the, 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 the two men went to pay the bill, the future mother-in-law turned to the daughter-in-law and says, don't listen to those two. This is the 90s. We're going to be wearing the pants. Don't worry about it. <laughs> this is the 90s. Have you ever heard this is the 90s yes. before? The barbarians. That poor bastard doesn't know what he's in for. <laughs> well, he's got it coming. Yeah, he does. They both do. Uh -huh. Well, Mark, would you like to comment on the matter of the intellectual barbarians in our midst? Well, the first sin was to be as God in Genesis 3. Satan denied what God had said. He questioned Eve's understanding of what God had said. But the only actual incentive he gave her, the only thing that you might call positive, saying, Eve, go ahead and do it, was he said, you shall be as gods knowing good and evil. And I, I have to remember that a lot to understand people and under, to understand sin. Because sin isn't a bunch of isolated acts. Sin is rebellion against God. It's a desire to be your own God. And men make lousy gods. And they make vicious and ugly gods when they have power over other people. And that's what the intellectuals, at least in the last hundred years, have tended to think of themselves, especially these anti-Christian intellectuals in the last hundred years, 
because they're anti-Christian, they're very much against established ethics and established standards, and they're not only snobbish, but they think they're much, they're much better than other people, and they want to change the world to their own liking, and they make awful gods, and that's exactly what, how they view themselves. And um, if you take a look at any evil movement, for instance, um, the homosexuals, when you break it down, even without resorting to the, the question of is it right or wrong, you're taking a group that thinks their, their sexual proclivity should be the standard by which all other men must judge them and they must accept them on that basis. That you must recognize what I do as good. You must acknowledge me. It's... Uh, they are barbarians, and there's many different groups of barbarians around us. And they're all barbarians because they destroy the basis of civilization, which is God's law. And if we run away from God, we're going to be fighting amongst ourselves in many different areas, and we're going to be self-destructive. And that's what barbarian intellectuals are. They're destructive of the fabric that makes up culture and civilization. Christianity built Western civilization yes. and as we move away from Christianity in many avenues and there are many avenues of rebellion against Christianity and God's word and they're all self-destructive well one of the subgroups of the intellectual barbarians are the historical revisionists which I would call culture vandals they have uh, are systematically uh, destroying the American culture. Yes. They want uh, to uh, rewrite the history of this country to show this country in a negative light. And I think it's going to backfire on them because uh, you cannot tell people that they're no good and that their country is no good because eventually you will drive people nuts and they're going to turn on them and uh, they're not going to come out too well. Uh, but this historical revisionism with this Goals 2000 thing in the public school system uh, where there are no heroes, there are no role models to look up to, uh, that can only result in a downward spiral in future generations. And these people have to be confronted, they have to be exposed, and they have to be discredited. Rush, um, I think Kerry is justified in devoting a great deal of time to the massive influence of Friedrich Nietzsche mm -hmm. on these intellectuals. Uh, Nietzsche was lionized by most of them uh, between all oh, about uh, 1870 and the beginning of the First World War. And even today, uh, the deconstructionists like Jacques Derrida derive a lot of their... Uh, views from Nietzsche. Nietzsche was convinced that God is dead and therefore any idea of morality is nonsense. And of course on his presuppositions he's absolutely correct. If there is no God then morality is a farce. He especially chided the people of the British Isles who had jettisoned, who had gotten rid of biblical orthodoxy and yet in Victorian England wanted to retain a sort of vague morality. He despised that because he saw its utter inconsistency. And because he was consistent, he, of course, went mad on the streets. Uh, 
because as I think Mark may have mentioned earlier, it was John, all they that hate me love death. Well, Nietzsche felt that um, since there are no, quote, values, and he's the one that really invented that word in that context, uh, man must invent his own and must become the superman. And since he felt most people were incapable of or unwilling of doing that, then uh, there are only a few gifted individuals, the intellectuals, who can make up their own values. Now, I submit that what we see today in the uh, cultural and the media elite is largely this uh, effect of what Nietzsche has said. That's why they can uh, involve themselves in such utter uh, nonsense and utter perversion as far as their specific views are concerned, the wildest views, and do it with a straight face. Because I think, as he indicates, as Kerry indicates in the book, this is largely a result of intellectuals deciding that they are the true revelation, the new revelation, and they can impose their views on everyone else. And it's for that reason that they uh, hate increased population and therefore are anti-covenantal. And they introduced what I call Russian new medievalism. They had a deep resistance to popular literacy. They wanted to keep people in the dark. Well, that's exactly why Protestants and the early reformers opposed to medieval Romanism. They wanted to keep the scriptures in the uh, Latin, which was inaccessible to the masses. Well, in the same way, modern intellectuals want to retain their control by opposing uh, literacy and that sort of thing. But as I said, I think it's largely the effect of Nietzsche and his, his influence in modern culture has not been sufficiently appreciated. I completely agree with you. Uh, I would add that Nietzsche's uh, mentor has not been sufficiently uh, appreciated. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson talked about the Oversoul and so on, but he was talking about Superman. He couched his uh, very, very anti-Christian philosophy and words that indicated uh, good American democracy when it was the antithesis of everything in this country. Nietzsche used to go around with uh, a pocket, uh, in his pocket or in his hand one or another book by Emerson dipping into it constantly and then simply stating what Emerson said in sweet acceptable language bluntly and brutally that difference marked uh, Europe and America here the intellectuals have been afraid to be as open until more recent years about their hostility to the people at large and to Christianity. So Nietzsche was emphatically an intellectual barbarian because he wanted to destroy Christendom and he believed the result would be the freedom of man to become Superman. Of course, as Van Riesen pointed out to oh, 35, 40 years ago in his little book on Nietzsche. Nietzsche finally came to realize that what he wanted was impossible. That man could not become the superman he talked about. That he was going to continue being the, uh, to put it in Christian terms, 
the sinner and rebel that he was. And it was knowledge that Nietzsche could not take. Well, the thing that Mark pointed out about the man's fall wanting to be God is is really at the core of the elite. They want yes. to retain the power of redefinition. That's right. Um, and when they were separating themselves from the culture, when they were making life and uh, writing and art unattainable or, un, or indecipherable, they use that as their own proof. And they like to, to recur, uh, they would like to um, refer to people like us, common people, as herds, uh, as, as animals. But what's interesting is, is, that the, is that the elite are more like a flock of pelicans than I've ever seen. If you know what a flock of pelicans look like, there's the lead pelican out front, and he flaps his wing. And then the one next to him flaps his wing. And when... And they all follow suit. Right. Um, common people don't tend to act like that. Common people t tend to, to, to basically do their own thing. But all these intellectuals are in lockstep. And that's what's fascinating. And it's amazing because it demonstrates their utter hypocrisy because they're constantly trumpeting individualism. Yet there is no group that is more uniform and is more fascistic than uh, this modern intellectual elite. Um, you were talking about keeping uh, art, uh, high art, uh, inaccessible to the uh, masses. I think a good example of that is James Joyce's celebrated, unjustly celebrated book, Ulysses. Um, this is just a prime example, a book that is that uh, even intelligent people find difficult to read. But the whole goal behind all of this was to keep a sort of Gnostic element involved. In fact, uh, Kerry points out the uh, rise of the uh, occult about this time and how there was an obsession for the occult uh, during this period, late last century, early this century, among the intellectuals. And that's not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that they wanted a secret knowledge. Well, a secret knowledge often involves uh, competing revelatory knowledge. And in the case of, quote, spirituality, the supernatural, that is, of course, the occult. Mm -hmm. Well, it was interesting is um, modern art compels the masses to recognize themselves for what they are, the inert matter of historical process. Yes. And that's basically what they think we are. Yes. Inert matter. He pointed out to Ian e. Forster's fascination with India. There's a revival there of the noble savage idea. These intellectuals looked around uh, their society, the industrialized society, and despised what they saw. But they felt if they could go back to primitive man, uh, they could find the truth. And the oddity about this is that, uh, as Kerry points out, there was no basis in fact for this. These people were true savages. But the intellectuals would invest these savages with their own meaning about how that they were very pure and uh, all sorts of high, having all sorts of high qualities that they actually did not have at all. Mm -hmm. Mark, uh, why don't you tell them about what you encounter in your work as a volunteer fireman fighting forest fires and all about the new philosophy of forest fires with regard to Indians, for example. Oh, well, uh, if you go to Yosemite uh, National Park in Yosemite Valley, which is one of the most photographed places in the world, I saw a plaque there a couple of years ago, and they say, if you see burned areas, because we're doing nat natural burning to rep uh, replicate the forces of nature 
which we have been suppressing for too long. And to a certain extent, that is true. The, the Smokey the Bear mentality um, and their idea of let's put all the fires out immediately, they found did create underbrush, which then burned so hot that it destroyed the trees rather than um, burning out the underbrush as, as fires tended to. But their, their attitude was quite interesting. Their, when they described the forces of nature, they include American Indians as part of the forces of nature. Um, civilized man and his activities are not part of the forces of nature. And they specifically said in this slide, the, the lightning and the American Indians caused natural, caused fires. And we are replacing these natural processes that man has interrupted in the last hundred or two hundred years. Mm. But, but Indians and their activities at burning, and, and the fact was that much of the Indian burning was merely as an easy way of capturing game. They would yeah. start a fire to drive the game towards them. So it was really a quite abusive of, of the natural resources. They didn't do it for any beneficial purposes it might have. It was an easier way for them to catch game. But and I found that this is this philosophy is continuing. If you go fight a fire in if I go to Yosemite, which is a national park, the park rangers are in charge of the firefighting operations. And and anybody, whether it's the Forest Service or the California Department of Forestry, who fights fires dreads having to fight a fire in a national park. Because the park rangers do not know about how to fight fire. And they will not allow. They will. They will threaten firefighters with arrest if they drive that fire truck off of a road to get closer to the fire so they can fight it. Mm. Mm. In Yosemite, a few years ago, there were some backpackers and hikers who were trapped by a, a fire, and some time was spent arguing with the helicopter pilots because they were de demanding that the helicopter pilots sent up there to rescue these hikers would hover just above the ground in order to pick up these hikers because they did not want those skids landing where it might interfere with the, um, the meadow or anything. They didn't want any weight put on the meadow. Hmm. And this is the mentality that, that um, people are the problem. This is the whole philosophy behind environmentalism. The people right. are the problem. Man right. has evolved too high. His brain is too advanced. Yes. He is interfering with the processes of evolution. Therefore, man must be controlled by force. Sounds, mm -hmm. sounds like their hats are too tight and cutting out the blood circulation <laughs> of their brain. Mm -hmm. And this introduces, too, a curious and cruel irony. For while the Word of God says that man, under God, as a vice regent, should take uh, dominion, they have completely reversed that. Yes. And now, the creatures, the creation itself, apart from man, is to take dominion over man. Mm -hmm. Well, what I find interesting is the, the this, this um, redefinition of people has even affected the, 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 the evangelical elite. Yes. And the, um, uh, Carrie uh, Amur observes that uh, people um, are not a collection of men and women but they're instruments dehumanized as an army. And what we have done, what the, you know, what the evangelicals have done, is they've dehumanized people and put everybody in the category of a sinner. So then they create these programs and schemes to save these sinners. 
They're not individuals that need to be worked with individually yeah. and mentored and brought up in the right way. It's these group, this, this herd of swine, these herd of sinners that, that the experts need to to manage and coerce into getting saved by Jesus. Yes, with a set routine, an altar call, going forward, being counseled. It, it, God can't do it without them. Exactly. Something important, I think, in, 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 that, in that book that you touched on is their, their contempt of the masses, and you said it began... Uh, when when people began to become uh, educated, when people when when the masses, as a, by and large, could begin to read, they began the intellectuals began reacting in horror because uh, they thought they should be the leaders of society. Now that the masses of people could read, and then shortly thereafter, photography was available to the masses. Uh, that meant art. That meant poetry. That meant literature. The marketplace was now thrown open to the masses, and they thought this was this was going to destroy everything. We should be dictating what is culture. We should be dictating what is um, good thinking and what is good literature. They began reacting to the masses by trying to make what is intellectual um, obscure and difficult, absurd, really meaningless, destroying yeah. meaning so that the, the masses couldn't understand it. Yeah. They were separating themselves from the real world. They were going off on a tangent so that the masses would have trouble following them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And foolishly, the masses still idolize intellectuals. Yeah. They right. foolishly followed them. They followed the modern art, which was consciously designed as this is something you can't understand. Right. And the person who sensibly looks at this modern art and says, this is stupid, is himself regarded as stupid. Right. So people think, but the intellectuals say, the artists say, and they're afraid to look at this for what it is and said this is nonsense. Yeah. And this is a revival of an old idea. Plato believed that the philosopher kings should rule in society, that the elite should rule. And Rush and I were talking earlier about the problem of abstraction. Largely uh, deriving from Plato is this idea that we can sort of spin in our mind the perfect utopian society and impose it on everybody else apart from uh, what actually happens historically. And uh, that's largely what these intellectuals have done and what they still do. You know, another point I wanted to bring up, and I'm hammering on the media elite today because although they are not specifically classified with the intellectuals, they would fancy themselves in that light. Their hypocrisy is always claiming to speak in the name of the people, but there is no evidence at all that they have genuine concern for specific people. It's like the adage about a number of the intellectuals that um, they hate, they love intellectuals in general, love society in general, but not not otherwise. Charles Schultz. Exactly. Snoopy line, it's, I I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And to me, that seems to be what the... uh, the media elite does. They constantly pick up causes, and I don't think they're, and there's no evidence that they're spe- interested in specific individuals. Uh, they just want to retain control. I think that's a, that's a prime result of the idea that's being spoken of here by Kerry. Well, virtually 100% of the programming on television is contempt, contemptuous of the public. The, the married with children, the, 
The Simpsons, the whole spectrum. There isn't anything you can pick out in prime time that's really entertaining. Uh-huh. It all has a message, it all has an agenda, and it's all negative, and it's all contentious. Yeah. Right, but God still uses it to his glory. And that's the most interesting thing I find, that God can speak to people through crap like married with children. So he is sovereign, although we may not like it. He still is sovereign, and he still is using those terrible shows for his glory. Shows like to make people look foolish. That, that's a common theme now, is people looking foolish and doing foolish things, as though that is normal. It's a contempt for, for people. Right. Well, it's becoming cliched, and uh, you know, I have to believe after a while it becomes boring, and people have to ask themselves, you know, when they sit down in front of this, what am I doing here? What am I wasting my time on this for? I mean, anybody with an IQ over 10 is just not going to spend their time watching that stuff, and the revenues of the television networks have dropped precipitously and and continue to drop, and they don't seem to be getting the message. Yeah, but that's what the elites were saying about the newspapers. That's what the the elites were saying about these uh, the, the the magazines that were coming out. So we're no better than they are, because at worst it's easy for us to sit around and say, "Oh, this is crap." What are we doing to change it? Are we redefining things? Are, are, are we working in the media? No, we're sitting around complaining. So we're was just as worthless to see uh, as Orwell was, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's why that in the task of Reconstruction, the uh, evangelical church has to recapture all of, all of these areas for Christ and use them for godly purposes. Uh, another thing that, that I was interested that Kay brought out was the the intellectuals, how they've affected the um, people's perception of charity. Um, uh, charity is something that only works when it's hands-on. When there, like Rush has um, re- repeatedly said, when there is a relationship between the giver and the recipient. But what these intellectuals would do is they would vicariously get dirty, thinking that that was the answer. It was this romantic notion that everything is in the nobility is in the struggle, and not in, in the um, in the completion of the work. And Orwell summed it up when he said, "You can have affection for a murderer or a sodomite, but you cannot have an affection for a man whose breath stinks." And 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 that says a lot, and uh, because dirt um, for them had like a sacrament, uh, uh, Carrie refers to it as an almost sacramental value, where they would um, uh, get themselves dirty thinking that was it. But if you contrast that with General Booth and the work that he did with the Salvation, you know, by starting the Salvation Army, he went in there and he cleaned the dirt up. And that's the difference between a Christian and, and a pagan is that the Christian will go in and get their hands dirty and, and do the work, and where these, these other people will just uh, get a little bit dirty and call it uh, helping their neighbor. It's an ironic fact that uh, one writer about 15 years ago called attention to the fact that the Salvation Army was doing more for the poor in New York City than the federal government, but the federal government got all the money. Hmm. 
there was so- something that I found interesting. I mean, a lot of things I found interesting in this book, but um, something that I have a direct experience with in, in Hollywood. It, and you know, you may. I guess I'm one of those people in the media elite. Um, I have access to people, so not everybody in the media elite is not a drag of humanity or a cheese mite swimming in the uh, historical cheese of history. In other words, not everybody called. in the media is elite, right? Right, exactly. But one thing that I was interested in, I have a, um, the, uh, uh, Clive Bell proclaimed in 1914, the artists need not bother about the fate of humanity because aesthetic rapture was self-justifying. And I wanted to bring this down to something that happened um, about uh, four or five years ago. There was a, a, a show called 30-something, and it was critically acclaimed show, and it was technically a very good, well-produced show. And I, know, I have two friends that were on that show. They were both the stars of it. They're both Emmy Award winners, Golden Globe winners. They were the, the, the leads in the show. And the show began as uh, an effort by the executive producers to make sense out of midlife crisis. So what they did was they got together and they would mull over the things that were important to them, what motivated them in their self-centered lives, their kids, sex, uh, marriage, adultery, uh, in-laws, and, and so what they did was they had a collection of their friends and they retold stories about their friends. And to show the utter disregard that these executive producers had with, with their audience is that they, they created a, a character and they wanted to show what breast cancer was all about. And the character that got breast cancer I recall watching the shows. I used to hate the shows because they were so excruciatingly real. So you had um, this aesthetic rapture. You had this suffering. You saw the woman dying. And what the executive producers wanted to do was to show the woman dying. And they wanted to show her dead. And the actress wanted to, to die as well. But what happened was there was such a backlash by the viewers. The viewers liked this woman. The viewers liked her husband. They liked her family. And the viewers got angry. And the executive producers, for the first time, admitted, they said to themselves, hey, I guess we have a duty to our viewers. So let's make this chemotherapy successful and let her live. But these people were actually did not care about their viewers. They were self-expressing. Yes. And that's the key to our generation, self-expression. Yes. Well, that is stressed from early years on now in schools, that the important thing is your self-expression. Children in the earliest grades are encouraged to express their ideas about things of which they know nothing. That's right. So they're very cheeky, very, very uh, self-assured, self-important. And that is a very real part of the barbarism of our time. There's no sense of authority. That's right. 
I, a few years back, oh, it's more than ten years back, had uh, a kindergarten teacher say that there was a new development in kindergarten. She's been, she had been teaching for some years. Instead of the kids being obedient and respectful, they'd cuss her out. And they were very, very thoroughly vulgar in the language they used. They had no sense of the authority of a teacher. Mm. Yes. You know, another point that Kerry makes here, one of his principal points is in the chapter, Rewriting the Masses. Now, this constituted a um, harbinger of national soci- socialism, Nazism. The intellectuals wanted to redefine the masses as nothing more than vermin. This idea that uh, Hitler was the first one to develop the concept of the Jews, for example, as nothing more than rats, is false. This was a prominent idea with the intellectuals uh, earlier. And Kerry's making a very good case that the uh, foundation for much of the atrocities in Hitler's Germany uh, must be uh, laid at the doorstep of the uh, intellectuals late last century and early this century. They could redefine the masses as being worthless, and uh, therefore uh, they could be easily exterminated, which is, again, as Rush has said so many times, as Weaver first said, ideas have consequences. We can't assume that uh, ideas are harmless and we can just bandy them about. Ideas have influence in society. and These ideas of these intellectuals uh, are living proof of it. I just thinking this... Uh a lot of people are puzzled by this uh, landslide in the recent election, and I heard one comment by one pundit, and I haven't heard it anywhere else, that among all of the various reasons, the, the uh, concern over economic future and, and uh, government's too big, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, one pundit said that uh, there was a sense among the American people that the American culture was a, on a uh, de- moral decay. Uh, because the the moral majority in and of itself cannot could not have caused this landslide so there has to be another group of people in our society that realize that something's wrong whether they're religious or not they realize that something's wrong because they see the evidence is in their face everywhere they go in every sphere of their life and it's making them very uneasy so I think it's finally people are beginning to figure it out that's right what concerns me because we in a certain case are um, leaders that have an audience we're in the media people read what we have to say to listen read what we write listen to what we say something Ezra Pound wrote struck me it sounded like a lot of reconstructionists to me and I think it's something we have to be careful about Ezra Pound said modern civilization has bred a race with brains like those of rabbits we who have been so long despised are about to take over control there's this us and them mentality and I think that we're going to be successful only if we don't take an attitude of us, and them, of us and them is if we mix it up with them and show them 
how God works through our own lives, not through our words. Well, I think that can be done uh, while still preserving a proper us and mentality. I mean, after all, in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says God himself placed the hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So I think there will always be, short of eternity, an us and them mentality. But I think the point you're making that's correct, uh, John, is that we can't thereby just be standoffish. I mean, our goal is to evangelize and thus bring all society under the authority of the law word of God. So I think it's in that sense that we can, on the one hand, recognize that there is a, a distinction, the great distinction, the great divide, the continental divide in humanity between those who are the children of God and those who are not. But that doesn't mean that we should be separatists and pull back. We have to get in there, like you said, and mix it up with the unbelievers and uh, be good, godly apologists. I mean, declare the truth of Christianity. Well, we have a problem in our time because the intellectuals feel free to damn the rest of us, to call us every name under the sun. But if we respond, somehow we are a vicious, dangerous breed. They have set the agenda for a long time. And I think it's an agenda that is not a matter for debate. I think we need to go back to the strategy of the early church. We simply declare the whole counsel of God. We go out to convert people, and we go out to heal the sick, the lame, and the blind, to do the works of charity that our Lord requires us to do. Because the argument that Uh, was decisive in the days of the Roman Empire was precisely that. The early Christians were accused of every kind of crime. Uh, the Romans, who were rather degenerate morally, still accused the Christians of being a free love cult. That they would turn out the lights at their meetings and then uh, strip and copulate uh, freely. But they were cannibals. That's what the communion service was about. And so on and on. And there was no way the Christians could be believed when they tried to defend themselves. But what did make an impact was that the work of the diaconate reached out to the needy in the community the Christians took care of one another. They reached out to those who were not of their community when they saw human need. And too many ordinary people in Rome had to say to themselves, they're better to our people than we are. They are more ready to take care of my old folks than I am. These things cannot be true that they say about them. Well, that's the only way we can vindicate ourselves, by doing God's work. Apart from that, we can't. I wrote a while back a couple papers or editorials. One, I believe, was entitled On Being Evil Spoken Of. In one of the two, I called attention to Joseph. Joseph was sent to 
prison by the Egyptian government for attempted rape. The Pharaoh released him and used him, and he became second to Pharaoh, the most important man in Egypt. But that conviction could not have been wiped out because the Pharaoh was a man-god. He didn't make mistakes. His officers didn't make mistakes. So there was no way Joseph could say, please, set my record straight. He lived and died simply as a convicted rapist who'd been pardoned and set free by Pharaoh. So he didn't have a good reputation with anyone who wanted to smear him to his dying day. But he was way out in front. He ruled all Egypt. He saved Egypt. Well, I think we Christians have a like role. We are being slandered continually. They're not capable of telling the truth about us because they hate us so. So we go ahead and do the Lord's work. God is our vindicator. And we will know his vindication throughout all eternity. I may be presumptuous to ask you this, Rush, but the other day at lunch you told Andrew and I something that was fascinating that you were going to be developing about in the book of Revelation about the healing of the leaves. Would you care to go into that now, or is it too early to do that? Well, I will, but uh, I'm going to write it up as probably an article or an editorial. In Revelation, we are told of the tree of life. Now, the tree of life is Jesus Christ. And that it's it bore fruit all year long, every month. So that, it, unlike all other fruit trees, its leaves did not follow a seasonal uh, calendar. This is why, because the evergreen is, in a sense, a tree of life. It was early chosen to be a type of Christ. And the Christmas tree is what we got as a result of it. The Christmas tree, because it never sheds its leaves, even though it doesn't bear fruit all year long, or any time, is a type of Christ and the Christmas tree, which, when I was a child, still followed Revelation 22, in that the ornaments resembled uh, fruit, and you had strings of popcorn on the tree. But it occurred to me, it speaks not of the needles of the tree of life, but of the leaves, a fruit-bearing tree. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, we know that a great many leaves have medicinal characteristics, have been historically very often used medically. And when I was a child, it was very common when you got certain ailments, you had a tea brewed of certain 
leaves which you'd buy in dried form. Well, the leaves, therefore, this is a tree that in a sense is evergreen, and yet it is not an evergreen tree because it bears fruit. But the leaves heal. Who are the leaves if not the Christians? Christ is the source of our life, of our power. And we are in him to be the means of healing all the nations, meeting their every need. And that's why we write what we do. That's why we do the charitable work under your direction, John, and that of others that we do. Because we are the healing leaves for the nations. In contrast to just planting a tree... Yes. and saying that that's sufficient or, the, the, or Christianity has become a symbolic situation not an individual working situation but this is a, the, the big symbol yes I think too we would shift gears here just for a minute we would be remiss if we didn't point out since this is a topic of Carrie's book how um, the intellectuals had a degraded view of women uh, speaking of H.G. Wells, Carrie says, A more insidious evil than newspapers and less resistible was woman. Though Wells was highly susceptible to feminine allure, his considered view of woman's influence on civilization was not favorable. For one thing, it was undeniably woman's unchecked fertility that was to blame for the population problem. For another, women notoriously used their sex appeal to captivate young males and force them into marriage thus tying them to the breadwinning treadmill and effectively ending their lives as thinkers. Close quote. And there are a number of others. And I think another example of intellectual hypocrisy is uh, the supposed, reputed support for um, egalitarianism (coughs) among the sexes, and yet uh, at root, intellectuals uh, do tend to have a very degraded view of women, and this is demonstrated quite clearly in uh, Carrie's book. Not only that, but um, charity for Nietzsche, uh, quoting benevolence, public spirit, and consideration of others are despicable Mm, herd virtues. Mm. The truly noble man is egotistic. He despises pity, which is unhealthy and is valued only by slaves. The warrior is a type of the finest man. War and courage have achieved greater things than charity. Men should be trained for war and women for the recreation of the warrior. You know what's amazing too, John, is that is, see, uh, Nietzsche was convinced that Christianity, uh, was, a, was genuine Christianity should be involved in godly charity. And that's one reason he hated genuine Christianity, because it was a charitable faith. Mm-hmm. Did you get the picture of Nietzsche that I yeah. sent to you? Yeah, I love that. Uh, Nietzsche hated uh, Jews and women. And he said, when you go into a woman, carry a whip. So he fell madly in love for Lou Salome, a Russian Jewish beauty of the day. And uh, his partner at the university, Re, also fell in love with the same woman. She never allowed 
Nietzsche to lay a hand on her even while she carried on with others. But uh, she got back at Nietzsche. She had him and Paul Ree uh, at the dog uh, position in a, a dog cart where the harness is put on while she stood in the back with a whip over them. Hmm. So <laughs> she put Nietzsche in his place, which didn't make uh, him like Jews or women any the more. It only confirmed him, perhaps, in his hatred. But that, to me, is a picture which delights me, a photograph. Mm-hmm. Well, the antidote to this tyranny of the experts or the elite is Christian men operating in self-government under God. Yes. Because if we're busy, first of all, getting our own houses in order, um, taking care of our wives and our children, educating them, doing the work that God tells us to do, we're going to be too busy to worry of what these poisonous flies who are the elite are saying or doing. Before we go any further, let me remind you that the book that we've referred to so many times is John Carey, C-A-R-E-Y, The Intellectuals and the Masses, and it was published this year, 1994, or in December of 1993, by St. Martin's Press, New York. The subtitle is Pride and Prejudice Among the Literary Intelligentsia, 1880-1939. Carey himself, after exposing the anti-humanity thinking of these intellectuals, falls prey to it himself. Because he really cannot see any answer to the so-called overpopulation crisis other than eliminating people. His real criticism was merely that they thought they didn't think they were part of the problem. Yes. Because we're all part of the problem. Yeah. He didn't disagree with their view of the masses. He said we're all the masses. Yeah. I think, John, another solution to the problem, too, is educated laymen. This idea that only the elite, even in Christianity, can understand theology is utter nonsense. And I think that's one reason that Chalcedon is so important because from the beginning one of its goals was to bridge the gap between layman and uh, a scholarship and it's done that admirably and well in the future. Scholars, when I came out with my books, were critical of them. One in particular said that I should write for scholars instead of people generally. Uh, I wrote as... clearly as and exactly as I would to scholars to everyone because the problem is not inability to understand but an unwillingness a moral unwillingness that's right Mm -hmm. and this they resent because they want to confine intelligence to their little sphere that's right and to treat all men intelligent as an equally intelligent if they choose to be is offensive. We have people who are factory workers who read the report and 
a group of them as they're having lunch together will sit around and discuss it. Well, they're as intelligent as the professors. Their reasoning is not with the highfalutin language, but it's no less competent and maybe more so because they have a moral dimension to their thinking. Yes. You know, Rush, I don't know about you, but I think the most elegant and eloquent description I've ever heard of David's battle against the Amalekites was by Reverend George McKinney in a yeah. sermon called Go Get Your Stuff. Which you made a film of. And he told me that story in his own way, and it, it inspired me to read a lot more about David. And I came across those terribly dense uh, scholar, scholarly journals, and they're just indecipherable. Yes. They're afraid to say something flat out because they might be wrong. So they express themselves in such convoluted language that uh, they can always say, you didn't understand me. That's right. In fact, especially in the modern humanities and English departments, there's a tendency to obfuscate or hide what is being written. Language is specifically employed to confuse uh, for some of those very reasons that you mentioned. Well, we have about a minute and a half left. Anyone have a final comment they'd like to add? Well, I think uh, great hope for the future is the Christian school yes. system, which we uh, didn't really touch on too much, but um, since there are no seminaries teaching uh, Reconstructionist uh, views, uh, the next best thing is to try and give the next generation a sense of, of uh, where it's going and uh, give them a path and uh, something to believe in because there's an awful lot of kids out there that have nothing to believe in at right, all. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you all for listening and God bless you.